Hello, I'm Andrew Suskind, and I'm a therapist and author based on the west side of Los Angeles since 1992, specializing in trauma and addictions. Welcome to my podcast, named after my recent book, It's Not About the Sex. Here we have honest conversations related to compulsive sexual behavior and trauma, all from a sexual health perspective. Our intention is to offer fresh viewpoints and practical strategies toward establishing greater intimacy and a more deeply connected life. Let's begin. Hi, Sue. Hey, Andrew. How's it going? I'm doing pretty well. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. I'm getting ready for the holiday weekend. We're here just uh, just before Memorial Day weekend. So uh, even though our listeners will hear this a couple weeks after the holiday weekend, I just wanted to wish you a really great weekend. Oh, thanks. Yeah, same to you. We're, we're thinking about checking out the LA County Fair. So we'll see. I hear it's a blast. Really? Okay. <laughs> I think it's definitely ch worth checking out. It's worth checking out. Cool. Why not? So I uh, wanted to start off by, by asking you a question about today's topic, because you and I were brainstorming what might be some topics to bring into our conversation here on the podcast. And you came up with this particular topic around co-occurring disorders. And I'm wondering what prompted you to, to think about that. Well, it's one of the classes I'm studying right now um, in my addiction counseling program at UCLA. And one of the professors brought up the point, I mean, I don't know if he quoted a fact or not, but um, that everybody has dual diagnosis or co-occurring disorders. And anybody with like a substance abuse addiction, he said, has an underlying mental health issue. And yeah, I just kind of thought I, I was interested to hear your take on that and um, how that may coincide with other addictions and what you felt about that. Because I'm not 100% convinced that everybody has a dual diagnosis, um, as much as he is. So I'm just, I'm just curious what your, what your feelings are about that. Sure. Well, what, what's interesting about this topic is we did not even have these terms when I finished grad school in 1991. So let's start there. <laughs> so, so back then it was a time when we didn't talk a whole lot about trauma right? The word trauma, the, the research on trauma was still, in my opinion, kind of in its infancy. Okay. And what seemed to happen is when, when people were going into these rehab programs back then, generally speaking, they were being treated specifically for the addiction, for whatever the addictive compulsive behaviors were. Mm -hmm. And of course, there were other issues. There were mental health issues. There were trauma issues. But primarily, it was the 28 to 30 day experience to get clean and sober. Mm -hmm. That was the, the primary focus, right? As the 90s progressed, there were some really premier programs. I won't go into my favorites, but mm -hmm. some of them are in Arizona and uh, some of them are, are more local here in Los Angeles. But anyway, it was a time when people started to recognize that 
we could not just treat the addiction, right? Or the compulsive behavior. It was essential to treat the underlying issues. And so we were just starting to learn that because there was such a revolving door of people going into rehab and then coming home and then going back to rehab and then coming home Mm -hmm. and going to sober living and then relapsing. And it just was, was really, really painful to watch and super expensive. It still is super expensive for some folks who still are in that cycle. But I mentioned all of that because that's when the term dual diagnosis came into being right. And dual diagnosis, like you said, it's, two things. It's the substance use problem and it's the mental health problem, right? Mm -hmm. I tend to use the word problem or issue rather than disorder because disorder or illness is a medical model terminology, which I understand. I can speak it, but I don't personally use it very often only because I, I feel like it's more intricate than just a diagnostic category. So With that said, dual diagnosis kind of flourished as a term. And then more recently, as you said, co-occurring disorders Mm -hmm. became more the, I guess, the politically correct words to use. I'm not sure exactly when that happened. I'm not sure who decided that uh, (laughs) needed to happen. But but nowadays, you'll hear co-occurring disorder much more than you'll hear dual diagnosis, even though it's the exact same thing. And, and what we do know, and this is the part that I want to bring into our conversation, is that even though the formal definition of co-occurring disorders is a substance use issue and a mental health issue, we can apply the same thing to any addictive process. So if someone has a compulsive sexual behavior or they have a a problem with gaming or with gambling or with overeating or, or anything that has a compulsive pattern to it, it's the same thing. We could call that a co-occurring issue with something else. And we'll talk more in detail about that as, as we keep talking. Does that all that, does that make sense so far? Oh yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And when you said the eating thing, it just popped in my mind, like people who compulsively eat, they, they usually are doing it to help what the mental health issue that they have, you know, comfort eating, you hear that comfort eating. Well, that's a dual diagnosis right there, right? For sure. And, and the thing about this is we don't always know it's like the chicken and the egg. We don't always know which came first. All we know is that both of them are present at the same time and that they both need to be addressed because if only one is addressed, it will be a slippery slope back into the, the other problem. Right. So as I said, I personally, I'm not, a medical model person. It's not that I don't feel it has some value, like for instance, between clinicians, between doctors. Mm. Um, but I, I, I don't really, uh, abide by the idea that, that, that any substance use or uh, compulsive pattern can be easily categorized and, and put into um, a particular box. I just think that there's, it's way too dimensional mm-hmm. and, and multi-layered, mm-hmm. right? So 
So what I wanted to mention to our audience is that diagnostic impressions, the diagnostic and statistical manual, that's kind of like the Bible of the mental health field, right? And it's an important, uh, and very important book to, to understand as a clinician, but it's not so helpful to be talking diagnostically necessarily, in my opinion, with our clients, mm. right? Yeah. It, we can be descriptive. We can talk about the different problematic areas that might add up to something that, that like depression, for instance, that, that is truly a major depressive um, pattern that that would be an example of teaching our, our clients or advocating for our clients. But for instance, I'm not big on, on talking to my clients about borderline personality or narcissistic personality because it's often misunderstood and doesn't quite capture the complexity of what's going on for the individual anyway. Right. So Right. Yeah. And then you don't want them Googling it. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> That's the most dangerous thing. Right. But I want to sure. go back to my own, um, my own experience as an early clinician. When I, when I was in grad school at UCLA, I had an amazing psychopathology teacher. I will give her a plug if she's listening. <laughs> Probably not, but her name um, is Rebecca Refuerzo. And Rebecca somehow made psychopathology so interesting and so alive that after two semesters of working with her, I, I, I felt very equipped to talk mm. that language, right? So I used to work in hospital settings and, and in a hospital setting, it's really important to be able to talk that language, right? Yeah. Because well, that's, so that's yeah. the, that's kind of the, the, the language of, of the environment. But the reason why I wanted to mention this is that it's one thing having that foundation, right? As a clinician, as a counselor, it's another thing getting stuck on it, right? As if I, somebody once told me that um, that we as as much time as we take to to learn these things like the the diagnostic and statistical manual, if it takes us a few years maybe to learn, it it also takes us a few years to unlearn, so that we don't abuse it. Right, and like you said, it was multi-dimensional and doesn't fit into a box. So once you start labeling things, it becomes difficult to treat it. Because there's so many layers and everything's different for everybody. So Yeah, the human condition is fascinating and mysterious. And when we start getting categorical, is that the word? Categorical? I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> I kind of like it. <laughs> um, or, or like you said, labeling um, or pathologizing. It, it, it just puts people into that, um, that smaller, narrow box rather than really looking at the bigger picture. And for instance, I'll give you a quick example. Let's say somebody comes to me and they have a, a drinking problem. Um, they've been sexually compulsive and they also are terribly depressed, right? And I feel like it's too much for me to see them in private practice. I suggest that they look into some programs 
my first um, suggestion for the person I'm thinking about was residential treatment. And sure enough, they, they took the suggestion and they went into residential treatment. Mm -hmm. They were in that setting for about 90 days. Mm -hmm. When they came back out, they gave me a call and wanted to come in and work with me in my private practice. They were like a different person, right? Their depression wasn't perfect, but it had lifted quite a bit, Mm -hmm. right? So we did, I didn't see all of those depressive kinds of um, qualities that, that originally were there. They were clean and sober. They weren't drinking. They were going to the program to, for 12 step and, and were really invested in that process. And so I always say that it takes about six months to a year to see what's really going on for an individual. And that's Mm -hmm. especially why I don't want to label them from the get-go. I want to see what happens after the trauma is treated. What, What happens after the depression is treated? What happens after they feel more connected to maybe their family or their loved ones or, or to 12 step. That's the the success story, right? Mm -hmm. Is, is that they come in looking one way and then six months, nine months, 12 months later, they they look completely different. And I I love that because it's, it's like, Oh, okay. So that's what this person really is about. Right. So I don't want to jump to any conclusions or, or diagnostic, um, you know, some labels so soon. Do you want to just um, mention some of those mental health disorders that people might be familiar with? I mean, are we talking like schizophrenia or are we talking like specifically depression? Generally speaking, when we see an addictive compulsive pattern going on for somebody, I scratch the surface and there's some kind of trauma underneath. It might be what we call a big T trauma, or it might be a small T trauma. It might be something as horrific as um, a sexual assault, or it could be something that looks more minor, like parents who were terribly neglectful of, of a child. And it doesn't matter what the trauma is. It, it can be just as it can have just as much impact on the individual either way. So, so I want to add that we're not just talking about diagnostic uh, categories here. We're talking about trauma and, you know, I think there would be some people who might think differently or or say, well, how, how could everybody who has an addictive compulsive problem also have a trauma? Well, I've been doing this a while now and, and I, I pretty much always find something going on in someone's background. It's not a hundred percent, maybe 97%, maybe 95%, but it's, it's a high, high number. And so when we're talking about trauma, of course, we can talk about a more formal diagnosis. Most people have heard of, of PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, I don't actually talk in those terms because disorders, even by by the terminology, again, is the medical model and 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 it's pathologizing, and that's not really my style. I, I look at things more from nervous system regulation, attachment, ruptures, 
and um, and and other kinds of factors that that don't necessarily add up to a nice clean diagnostic um, kind of uh, list, right, of, of symptoms, so to speak. But with that said, to answer your question, uh, certainly post-traumatic stress disorder would, would be a mental health problem to look for. Major depression, absolutely. Uh, generalized anxiety disorder would be another one that's very common. And and, and nowadays, and this was, again, something that was still in its infancy when I was in school, but um, ADHD and other attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, attention deficit disorder without hyperactivity, um, various kinds of learning differences um, would be considered mental health problems. But basically anything that is plaguing someone, right? that somebody's suffering from. And so generally it's pretty easy to find that when somebody presents with some kind of addiction or some kind of compulsion that you scratch the surface and there's going to be trauma and there's going to be some kind of mental health um, issues that have probably been cumulative for many, many years. So let's um, flip the coin on the other side and maybe dive a little deeper into the addiction side of it. Um, I didn't, we talked a little bit at new, well, you mentioned like sex and food, gambling, um, money, uh, where do they fit into this? Sure. So there was a time when we referred to food, sex, money as behavioral addictions. Um, and then that, evolved into what we generally call process addictions. Again, it doesn't fit neatly because nowadays compulsive sexual behavior disorder that the World Health Organization coined not too long ago, or, or, or should I should say formalized not too long ago, um, that, that these, all these things are parallel to what we're talking about today. So, even though the formal definition of co-occurring disorders might be a substance abuse issue coupled with a mental health issue, we could just substitute that sub, uh, that substance abuse problem with a process addiction, food, sex, money, gaming, et cetera. Actually, um, so my understanding is that diagnoses or dual diagnoses can change over time. Is that right? Well, that's the good news. You're not like stuck with this forever? Definitely not stuck with it forever. Um, that's part of the reason why I, I veer away from diagnoses because it is kind of scary to put it on your formal record, like especially if you're in a um, treatment center or in a hospital. Um, it's very, very common to have it in your medical record, right? But... The, the thing that we talked about a moment ago is that it looks different. It looks different. Thanks. Thank goodness. If someone's really invested in their recovery and their healing process, it, it's just not going to be the same story down the road. Right. I, I'm, I'm fortunate in my practice that sometimes I get to see people for several years. Right. And when they first come to me, they might be highly anxious 
and really terrified and um, having trouble staying um, staying on on whatever their recovery program may be and staying clean and sober, staying um, on track with with their their process. But with a lot of time and a lot of support, a lot of um, different kinds of uh, healing, um, what's the word? Um, when there's a lot of different spokes, basically, to the healing process, right? I, I always think about, um, I was just talking with somebody earlier about this. You know, they really rely heavily on their sponsor. They rely heavily on me. They happen to have an ongoing connection with God, and that's really important to them. And they have people in their 12-step program that are there for them to to be um, to brainstorm things, to get reality checks from, et, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm thinking of him for a moment without going into the whole story. And he was terrified when when um, we first met and he did go to treatment and it made a difference it didn't make didn't do everything for him to go to residential but it did make a difference and little by little by little he kind of said he surrendered basically in 12-step terms he he said it's time i can't do it by myself and i think i've known him, I want to say maybe four or five years at this point, something like that. And he's a different person nowadays. He's, he engages in our relationship in a way that he didn't know how to before. He um, asks for help when he needs it. He's able to recognize when he's in a slippery place or when he feels he might relapse in some way or another. So to, to answer the question, there's still a lot of folks suffering. There still is a revolving door of relapse out there. The percentages, the recidivism rates are still, I love that word, recidivism, by the way. Well, yeah, I'm um, going to use the, it tonight. I'm <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it kind of rolls off the tongue, recidivism. recidivism um, yeah. If you say it enough times, it, gets, it doesn't mean anything, but recidivism rates are, are still rather um sad right and and so there are those who get it and there's those that that still suffer and i don't think there's any easy formula for, for that i don't I, th I think you can go to the most expensive prestigious rehab in the country or in the world and still have big big problems and and um difficulties and and i know someone actually recently who went to a um, residential center here in los angeles that is really not um not an easy place to go it it, it, it has a lot of folks who are some from jail some who are uh, just don't have any money at all and he had a really positive experience at that center. So it's a little bit of my editorial for the day, but I don't think there's a formula, but, but I think what we're talking about today is that the co-occurring disorder or the co-occurring issues have to be addressed 
in, in over time before they create um, a tremendous vulnerability to go out and and um, use again or 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 in uh, sexual comp compulsivity to to have that that um, acting out uh, cycle. Do you see that that's the norm that, um, I mean, I don't know how familiar you are with different uh, um, recovery centers around in this area, but are they, do they generally try to scratch the surface a little and look deep in, or is, do you think that people generally try to do that? This is a tough question because I don't want to um, to say that there are centers out there that that don't mean well because I think they all have some kind of desire to help people. But whether or not the staff and the center as a whole has the training to work with the complexity of cases that we see nowadays, I, I see in 2022, I see cases way more complex than I did in the early nineties, like multi-layered, multi-dimensional problems that require like a, a kind of a surgical precision to know where do I begin? What, what is the foundational clinical beginning here? How do I help this person first? I, I believe that, that if somebody is in an addictive compulsive cycle, that has to be addressed first before the other pieces can really be um, fully addressed. But that doesn't mean that they can't be concurrently addressed, right? So because I don't work in that setting, right. I'm, I'm lucky that I get to see people after they uh, go to treatment that I, I don't have that acute crisis model that, that they do. Mm -hmm. So oftentimes it's about stabilization. It's about helping someone unplug from whatever dangerous, um, sometimes life-threatening kinds of behaviors they've been involved in. So it's interesting. I know I'm going off a little bit here, but how mm. this model, uh, it would be fantastic if the medical model kind of followed like treating the whole person, treating every you know integratively instead of just picking and focusing on what might be shouting or hurting the most um but actually working at fixing up on top of the waterfall instead of downstream a little more you know <laughs> but I, I couldn't agree more I, I have to say that i've seen a lot of progress in some hospital settings like we have some really amazing um, places like UCLA, for instance, they have come a long way from the time that I was, I was a student there. And so the, the doctors are, are getting some of that training that you're talking about. And there's a little more integrative, holistic approach. It's not pervasive, but, but there's more understanding and, ways of conceptualizing what's going on that that's much more forward thinking and, and cutting edge but it's the knowledge out there too so if you're this message is being heard by our by um your listeners if if you feel that there's a bigger problem there's something else going on maybe you would seek out 
that service that's that's being offered somewhere else. Um, so just something to think about, you know. I, I agree. And, you know, it, it's, it's people like you, Sue, who are going to be on the front lines um, as you finish up your addiction counseling degree. Um, and it's, it's people like me who have gotten a lot of gray hair through the years um, by seeing a lot of folks who, who really are come to me in anguish. And I, I nowadays I, I really know when they're ready for private practice and when they could use more structure, whether it be intensive outpatient or residential treatment. But, but I think what you're saying is, is true. And the most important thing for our listeners, if you have a loved one or, or you're concerned with your own issues is to find someone like Sue or I that you can trust. And we can be like a triage person, you know, we can be that point of contact where you get to be honest and confidential and look at what's going on and, and then come up with a plan. I've been doing that for years mm -hmm. where, where people will just come in with the intention of wanting a plan and, and, and to know that they're not alone in that. Right. Yeah. Again, it comes back to that connection, right? Oh, for sure. I guess to wrap it up, to so it sounds like dual diagnosis is pervasive, and it's a term that gets used everywhere. For sure. I mean, it's it's funny because I feel a little unsure about the language actually that we're talking we're using today. I, I I believe that dual diagnosis is is now considered a term that is not used as much, right? That co-occurring disorder is, is more the accepted or maybe politically correct right, yeah. um, word. But yeah, I, I think like your professor said, I, I think it, it's everywhere. So if there's one good thing about talking in these terms, it's normalizing that when somebody is going through some kind of addiction, some kind of compulsion, that the mental health issues are an, an, a necessity to address, if not simultaneously, in, in sort of the larger healing package. Yeah, it's important to look at at least. I mean, there are some times where um, behavioral issues might be because someone's doing going through withdrawal or something like that, but it can't hurt to rule it out. You know, you need to at least take a deep dive and, and take a look at it. Um, but yeah, this, this is wonderful information. Is there anything else you want to share? Well, I, I'm probably going to re repeat myself, but I want to say it anyway. If you or a loved one has something that looks like or smells like or tastes like uh, a co-occurring disorder or, or problem or issue, please don't hesitate to ask for help. If you want to email me or, or give me a call, um, if, if you are just looking for some direction, I, I generally, if I don't know the answer to, to where to get the support, I know someone who knows where you can get the support. So, so most of all, to know that there's really good treatment out there. There's a lot of support that, that we just didn't have a few decades ago. 
and and how can you avail yourself of that you know and and to know that it's a big decision you know i, I personally i i always uh, get three um I, I always ask for three estimates, so to speak. Um, so if you're if you're looking for a therapist or a counselor, get three opinions, right? Before you decide. There, like you said, Sue, there are there are better programs out there, and there's not so better programs out there. And if you're going to invest your time and energy and money in this way it's so, so important to make an informed decision. So a, a little bit of homework can, can go a long way. Thanks. That's, that's super helpful. Thank you. I hope our listeners can hear you loud and clear. <laughs> I hope so as well. <laughs> Thanks for listening today. It was so great sharing the time with my colleague and friend, Sue Merlino, and discussing this really significant topic. If you're so inclined, please give us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe and share my podcast with those who may benefit. I look forward to you joining us the next time and don't forget to stay connected.